Our world is changing. It's time for fresh ideas and new points of view. I'm Jana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel. And this is Chanel Connects, bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and more. Can you hear me, Charles? Yeah, I can. Hi, Emerald. Hey, it's so nice to meet you. It's great to meet you, John. Great to finally meet you, Annika. Thanks for having us. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what's coming next. And now we get to listen in. episode, Diane Solway, Head of Arts and Culture Programs at Chanel, moderates a conversation between Annika Yee and John Acomfra. Artist Annika Yee expands the boundaries of art with work that explores biology, technology, and the merging of the two. Collaborating with scientists, she's created giant kelp lanterns inhabited by robot moths, made art using fungi and microbes, and filled galleries with pungent senscapes, addressing attitudes to women's bodies. For her recent installation, In Love with the World at the Tate Modern in London, Annika presented her vision of a new ecosystem, filling the space with flying machines resembling mushrooms and ocean life forms, and with smells relating to the building's history. Annika connects with pioneering artist and filmmaker John Acomfra, a founding member of the influential Black Audio Film Collective, which started in London in 1982. Today, he is known for his remarkable films and multi-channel video works exploring the themes of memory, migration, race, climate change, and our relationship with the natural world. John's films are stunning accumulations of image, sound, and feeling. Together, John and Annika discuss if we are more than human. Annika and John, it is great to have you with us today for Chanel Connects. Welcome. Where are both of you speaking to us today from? Well, it's great to meet you, John. I'm really honored to be <laughs> on this podcast with you and Diane. I'm in actually Encinitas, California, which is in, I guess, San Diego County proper. Well, equally great to, to finally meet you, Annika. I'm uh, in my basement in London, <laughs> where it seems like I've been for the last three years. Oh <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> well, I could not be more excited about bringing you both together for the first time in conversation. That's a real thrill. So Annika and John, you're both visual artists with an intense interest in the senses other than sight. Um, Annika, you've observed that we give too much weight to that which we can only optically observe, and you have made art with scent and many other things. And John, I know that audio is integral to your films, and you've said that the, there are sonic ways of knowing the world which are as important as other ways. So I wanted to ask you both, how did each of you come to these realizations about other types of perception and the ways that you could use them in your art? Your name starts with A, Annika. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I you first. Uh, I'll take an alphabetical <laughs> order. <laughs> um, so... I think it's at a very early age as a child, I was very sensorially awakened 
not just to the ocular, but to smell, touch, taste. And that was how I was able to detect I was alive. Because a lot of times I think that, you know, when we have these kinds of a relationship with just something pure, purely cognitive, um, it can make us feel like maybe that we are detached from our bodies and, and being able to be grounded in my senses was a way for me to be uh, in touch with my, my body, but also a kind of physical intelligence that's at work. It was almost like a pure instinct and reflex that that's how I would approach what at the time I wouldn't even call art, (laughs) what I was trying to do. (laughs) And I wasn't the only one. I think there were plenty of people who were questioning, is this art? And I didn't really defend it as such because I just thought, well, this is maybe not what that is. And I think that that's um, allowed me to be so much more nimble and agile in my practice is not to get hung up on these sort of categorical imperatives of what I'm doing, what I'm not doing. And John, what about you? A great answer. Absolutely fabulous answer. I'm slightly in awe. I have to follow that, but um, I'll have a go. <laughs> I mean, I think in my case, it was in the presence of the visual and a kind of intense engagement with the visual that I realized there's something else was missing, that there was an elsewhere that needed to be to be accessed. You know, as a child, I went to the Tate literally every weekend almost. And the thing with, with museums is that when you're in it, you're always surrounded by others. And I realized that there was, it was almost impossible to have a singular relation with the paintings, partly because of the murmurs, the whispers, the conversations around me. You know, and it took me a while to to understand that, you know, actually most of the people around me were slightly surprised that a 12-year-old <laughs> would want to have this engagement with canons of European painting, you know. And it's in their whispers, their, their sort of sniggers, that, that I began to understand that there might be more needed than just an engagement with the visual. And I've tried to hang on to that. I've tried to hang on to those primal scenes of shame, if you like, you know, with people going, why is that little black boy in this place? (laughs) I've tried to hang on to what that meant at the time when I thought I was having the best time of my life, as well as, you know, all the other non-visual ways in which I've found to talk to either myself or to others since, really. It's very important, not just for my work, but for my life. Turning to your work, Annika, tell us about your remarkable aerobes, those flying machines that looked like giant squid in your recent Tate Museum exhibition. Can you describe them for those listening and talk a little bit about the concept behind them and why you decided to set them loose in the massive turbine hall? Sure. Well, I work with air a lot, and I was trying to foreground air uh, with this project, and air to me is a sculpture in which we inhabit. 
And that was really the guiding principles going into this project. And so, um, you know, the aerobes are really a kind of a manifestation of um, so much of how we can activate the air in the turbine hull. Um, they're also filled with helium air. Um, and they're also learning about life through the, the the scent molecules that are also being transmitted throughout the air. So the, the air is just this incredible space for information sharing. It holds all of our anxieties and fears and potential mates that we may find, you know, pheromonally speaking. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the air contains not only um, purpose and potential, but it also contains history because the air you know, it's funny, we, we use these, this, this term fresh air often, right? And yet there's no real such thing as fresh, fresh air in the sense that most air is, is, is recycled air from, you know, millennia back uh, since the dawn of time. The embers of Joan of, Joan of Arc being burned at the stake and the molecules that we also create today will contribute to future life. And yet it also contains a lot of the atmospheric injustices of who gets to breathe the good air and why. And so the aerobes are a new species I'm introducing into this uh, paradigm. Um, thinking about the history of the turbine hall, the industrial legacy of London as one of the really early industrial cities in the world, and and thinking about the nascent emergence of machines and, and uh, the evolution. And I wanted to address a multitude of things with this project, uh, one of them being what if we had a different relationship to machines? Um, up until now, we've really only thought about machines in a, in a purely capitalistic sort of terms, you know, through the Industrial Revolution. And, um, you know, our relationship to technology is purely conditioned by capitalism insofar as we want things to be better, stronger, faster. And in that uh, in that relationship also contains our fear of machines, right? Uh, that 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 we will become obsolete, that they'll mm-hmm. take over the world, and then you know what function will we have? And I think that um, you know that narrative needs to be rewritten and rethought because uh, what if we actually had a relationship to machines where there was no utility or function to machines, and that they could just be wild, and that um, to introduce an idea that we could coexist with these machines uh, versus having to domesticate them and having to enslave them for our our purposes. But also um, to uh, an ability to think about how AI would be developed. Um, Up until now, we've really only focused on pure cognition when we think about machines, you know, this kind of the, the brain in a vat, the separation of the the neural uh, sort of intelligence versus the rest of the body. And I'm trying to foreground an idea of an artificial physical intelligence, because as biological entities, we experience reality through our senses, through our bodies, and there can be no consciousness without the body. And so why wouldn't we try to explore that level of, of research and development for machines in, in biological terms? And so these Arabs in the turbine hall currently, they're learning through, uh, through the senses 
and they are reading and picking up on heat signatures from the uh, the public and visitors that come into the hall, and they're able to gravitate towards uh, different kinds of heat signatures they've never experienced before, and then they will kind of come over to you and um, be curious and learn through the heat that you're giving off and through this sense, um, it's my hope that we can, uh, you know, start building machines um, in a biologized sense versus a purely cognitive. So in a sense, you envision them, uh, machines in nature coexisting in harmony. That's the hope, Diane. (laughs) That is the hope. Um, At least aligning more biological uh, attributes that we haven't, uh, you know, that we haven't explored in AI development uh, to be able to use the senses as a springboard into thinking about uh, these machines. But also, you know, as uh, the virus, uh, you know, we're in this pandemic, this virus has taught us that, you know, it's scrambling what we constitute as living and non-living. And that sort of, uh, you know, that dialectic is starting to become less and less important. Like, you know, what is living? I mean, the virus is technically not alive. It cannot self-reproduce without a host. And yet it has, you know, it, it predates most of life on the planet. It regulates all biodiverse life on the planet. And so we have to rethink all of these ideas of what is living and non-living. And I think that that really also maps onto machines as well. And so the idea of like, oh, is that machine living or non-living, it doesn't really matter anymore as far as I'm concerned, you know? And it's really about like how we can, uh, you know, coexist and how how uh, uh, we can welcome and embrace a new species on the planet. It's so incredible that the, the two of us are talking, Annika, <laughs> because every time you open your mouth and every time I read something, I'm like, wow, we're almost like Siamese twins in some very <laughs> profound way. Um, and I think that goes all the way to to the projects themselves. So I, I went yesterday to the Tate for the second time to see your turbine installation. And something really interesting happened. It was a final day, so there were lots of people there. And what was written pretty large what's what was emblazoned almost across the entire hall were people just yearning yearning to make a connection with these objects you know are they sentient does it matter if they're not uh you know can we establish communion with them in some way and i mean these are really like important things for us to to take on board so when you when you say in one of your interviews, well, I have this kind of skepticism about whether this stuff should be called art at all. I think, yeah, actually, in these moments, you're right to feel slightly skeptical because actually the the drama of conferring ontological status onto the non-human, you know, can be done in these settings in a way that that is very light and gentle and, you know, playful you know, in, in a way, the minute you say it's art, it kind of <laughs> puts, puts a dampen on the whole thing. You know? I really enjoyed just watching these moments when people who are grounded in a kind of classical definition of sovereignty, I am a mm-hmm. human being, that is a thing, 
suddenly find themselves at the crossroads of that sovereignty, having to accept precisely what you're saying, that there is a, there is a coterminous, mm-hmm. indeterminate space in which they and the so-called mm. thing or other mm. are becoming one <laughs> well, in, in an know, exchange, in, de- in a dialogue, you know, sorry. In, in defense of art, perhaps, <laughs> you know, maybe art can also be a, a, a place uh, that isn't like fully dissected in the place of non-conceptual thinking and non-conceptual existence. And that's my hope, you know, of what, you know, someone would experience when they come into the Turbine Hall and, and, and be in this space with these Arabs is that it can, you know, outstrip our sort of like, you know, cognitive abilities to understand exactly what anything is. And just to just sort of have experience as just as, to be right as yeah. exactly just to be and experience these without um, you know having to understand exactly what's happening and can't articulate maybe. John, your latest film, Five Murmurations, is a meditation on the pandemic, but also on the murder of George Floyd and the Black Lives Matter movement. It takes its name from the incredible swirling patterns made by flocks of starlings. What fascinates you about these murmurations, and why did you choose them as a theme for the film? I quite like and have been trying to develop a practice which borrows from the fields of you know science and philosophy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, to make things that appear to be not simply products of the human world, but 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 other worlds. And a memoration is really one of those very beautiful events that you catch occasionally at dusk in certain European countries. I'm sure they're, they're all over the world. And everyone stands there watching, you know, uh, Stalin's do these incredible dances and choreographies. Um, and like everyone else, I've loved it until I realised that they were actually cri de coeur. That there were they were, they are sign, cries of help, uh, protective strategies. Um, so it's perfectly possible to have something that looks incredibly beautiful, which is also a scene of the disaster. You know, um, and I wanted that. I wanted to, I wanted to to use that as a metonym rather than a metaphor for a film about a project about human cries a kind of visceral response to a set of events. One of the things that uh, that meant was, for instance, uh, trying to decide what to do with the voice of George Floyd in the eight and a half minutes that that it took him to die. Um, And I thought that the question of a murmuration could help really frame quite literally that voice you know so that it could, it would end up being something incredibly harrowing but also quote unquote beautiful at the same time and it was important that the two had this dialogue with each other inside the frames of of five murmurations Annika, you've jokingly remarked um, that you're the virus's publicist, um, <laughs> and a lot of your work has centered on microbiology. You even did a show several years ago that looked at uh, human fears of viral contagion. 
And you've made art using microbes and viruses. Um, so I imagine the pandemic has been incredibly thought-provoking uh, for you. Have you had in any important realizations? Everything that I thought I knew is starting to really collapse and disintegrate. And that's a wonderful thing in lots of ways, right? Um, because I don't think that that world in 2019... Um, we can't go back to that world anymore. It's over. It's gone. And we need to learn to let go of that. And I think that artists like John and myself, we're really, um, you know, we're, we're wired to construct new worlds. So this is a, a way to really um, not only uh, mourn loss, but also embrace possibilities of uh, new worlds that we can build and and not be so... Um, you know, overly morose about having to let go of a former world. That being said, um, I do want to say one thing about, um, you know, John's film, um, which is so really elegantly compelling to watch. Um, what really resonated for me with that film is, um, is how the senses were really foregrounded um, and how they were linked to these you know, these, these patterns of the, you know, the starlings and the birds and, um, and, and how it was able to link this kind of multi-species kind of symbiosis. And it makes you rethink your relationship to justice, for example, you know, how can we think about justice in terms of the body and the senses and in terms of other species and in terms of, you know, ecologies, um, so the the pandemic has really opened that up, and I think that it, it, it's 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 a, a forcing us to um, you know be embrace the porousness of our bodies and the porousness of our thinking. And initially, it is creating a lot of division, but at the same time, I think you know what's emerging is some sort of melting. <laughs> <laughs> sort of embrace of of knowing that we're all deeply connected and what we're seeing with the divisiveness is just an example of deep fear of that you know mm -hmm. connection that we have with each other we're also seeing um i think a lot of embrace as well that isn't maybe as touted in the headlines because that doesn't sell newspapers as much right <laughs> quite Right. I think it's heightened, yeah, definitely the sense of other, you know, that you don't want to get it. It does, there's something coming from without that is, that will somehow permeate, as you said. And I think that actually is interesting because in, you know, in John, of course, you've made many works that are exploring our relationship to the national world, but also the distinctions between human and non-human, mm. um, especially, um, you know, in your work, Vertigo C, around attitudes to migrants, for instance. And I thought that was such an interesting work to mention because you contrasted, you know, the brutality of the whaling industry with the experiences of migrants who are crossing the sea out of necessity in search of a better life. I wonder, John, if you could, if you could just follow up on that in terms of how you, how you approach, I guess, looking at those distinctions between human and non-human. I think people have got to a point where they now feel agnostic, skeptical about the, the claims that somehow a hierarchy can be put into place, which endlessly stresses that they sit on top of some chain of being, at the bottom of which must be all other forms, uh, apparently non-human. Because what they've noticed, and I think this is more instinctive rather than rational, what they've noticed is that the bottom part 
can change, you know. So you are allegedly on the top of this species chain, but you could quite easily end up at the bottom of it if you're in a in a World Trade Center or you know on a boat in the Mediterranean trying to get to Europe or you know uh, a Vietnamese person who thinks, well, you know, is it do I stay in Vietnam or go to the States in 1970? You know, to be the victim, the bottom of the pile, can very quickly move from an ant and a rat to you. And because of that experience of the last half a century, I think people are also open for these investigative insights that the work of Annika and myself, I think, embodies, right? Which is this deep affinity, almost voodoo affinity, with, with the sense that things must be shared you know, that the, the space of being has to be conferred broadly, broader, mm-hmm. uh, more democratically, if you will, than it has been to now. And, and it's, in a way, what leads to projects like Vertigo C, when you suddenly realise that actually, yes, there are differences, huge and profound and fundamental differences between being a whale and a Nigerian, but that actually, when it comes to some pretty profound ones, there are not many. Uh, one, you can both drown at sea, um, and that the reasons why you, you drown at sea are kind of quite connected. Um, uh, the differences appear not as vast when you realize that the technologies that produced the boating that rendered certain African beings um, subject to subjugation in the new world were exactly the same technologies that led to the cetacean genocides of the 17th and 18th and 19th century. You know, the, the boats are the same. <laughs> I actually have a question for you, John. You know, when you're talking about the human and the non-human, how attached are you to the grand narrative of the human, the way that humans have evolved in thinking about our own exceptionalism and how we left the nature cosmos and how we separated ourselves from the natural world. And then we created a domain that exists outside of nature, which is, you know, the the, the, the human domain. I think that we can all probably agree that with all of these new scientific research, uh, AI research, that um, you know those those narratives aren't exactly accurate, mm-hmm. and we have to constantly update. And so I have had to let go of a lot of my conditioning to those uh, those kinds of genesis narratives, and um, I feel like that ha- ha- is really at the core of my work, of what I'm trying to do is trying to reset, reorient what is human nature and what constitutes the human if, um, and this notion of what the human doesn't even really exist from the perspective of microbiology. Like, you know, I mean, we're mostly uh, microorganisms that are, you know, uh, like mostly virus, fungi, microbes, and this 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 substance called the human is actually kind of negligible in lots of ways, and yet that mm-hmm. substance is is fulfilled through a narrative. No, I, I hear you. I hear you. I mean, and this is you know very astute of you because I think you fingered <laughs> the key fault line in in the practice, really, in the work 
Um, and it has been, to be honest, from, from the beginning. Um, because uh, the, the initial research of the collective was really about trying to figure out how in this broad demarcation of something called the cultural and the natural, you know, roughly sometime in the 12th, between the 12th and the 15th century, this figure, this uh, thing, the human emerged and what attributes it was uh, said to be endowed with. And the reasons, of course, why that was important for us then as young people of colour was because we were trying to find answers to why, you know, <laughs> the self-evident humanity of our being just wasn't taken account of in racist discourse or racialized discourses about what constitutes the human. So um, I've been, I've had at best an ambivalent relation with the category because I realized that it had this policing, if you will, function in the biopolitical sphere. Um, now, I, I mean, I would say that I'm not attached to it I'm prepared to let go, but what I, uh, what I'm very keen on is trying to wrestle with the key question of sovereignty mm. that underpins it, mm. right? This key question of will and sovereignty, because because everything is tied around that, yeah. Um, and it's that sovereignty that I want democratized. Mm -hmm. It's that sovereignty that I want dissented. Mm -hmm. It's that sovereignty that I think we need to spread, um, you know, slightly more thinly than it has been. You know, I've always thought of <laughs> the human as a kind of glorified condominium for <laughs> these microorganisms <laughs> in a way. And, and so, um, so we're having to constantly rethink the grand narrative of what, what we are, who we are. Um, and it's increasingly apparent that we are more than human, that we are something, something altogether different. And that maybe language is just like a couple of, I don't know, a decades behind my I guess like worldview is really grounded on the fact that we are all interconnected and that there can be no real ethics without that basic understanding and acceptance. Um, quick question to Annika. Um, have you had any major disasters when preparing exhibitions? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, Every time, <laughs> um, my my installations are incredibly complex, and you know you're living, you're working with living organisms in, as part of your artwork. Um, some more consensual than others, and <laughs> and and so there there's a lot of um, volatility and instability that comes with that. I've had difficulties with growing microbes in Switzerland. I've it's a very clean clean country. <laughs> That's really funny. I, I was trying to grow microbes um and it just wouldn't grow and it took me like weeks. Um um but then on the flip side of that uh I just remember a project in um Yokohama where it was just it was almost I couldn't contain the microbial growth. And so, so yeah, there's a, there's a lot of, of that kind of, um, you know, negotiating mm -hmm. with these materials. 
You've both, you know, created work that addresses these huge societal issues, um, race, migration, global warming, and many other things. What do you think artists are uniquely able to do on such important topics that, say, scientists or activists cannot? Hmm. Can I respond to that? Um, I think that artists can actually demand the impossible. Um, I think that artists can um, ask for 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 things in manners of technology where it seems that it's the limits of physics or or biology or something, and we can really push through um, a lot of those kinds of logistics and then figure out how they can be translated and met. So we can we can actually set the bar pretty high, and this is something that I, I hope that more artists um, uh, will do: engage with technology and science. Um, and not allow, let's say, Silicon Valley to lead the, the the discussion on this. Let's get in the game, people. Let's get in the conversation, artists. Um, this is why, you know, the, the Turbine Hall Project was so important to me because on a level that it was proof of concept that this can be done and that uh, we brought together three different kinds of radically new technologies that had never been merged before into these fully autonomous flying machines. Um, perhaps the art audience may not be as as interested, but I can tell you right now that um, it's it's a huge milestone what we accomplished. And this is something that I'm hoping that more artists can do, uh, you know, to, to push the boundaries and the limits of what is possible um, beyond, you know, uh, like budgetary considerations or something like that. Uh, so I think that's really, really important for um, artists to be at the table when we're talking about where is civilization heading mm. and it shouldn't just be the technologists and the politicians and the scientists. I think artists should be uh, very much engaged with that conversation. Really, it speaks to, I think, the work that both of you do, which is that you always present us with something to think about that forces us to look at the world a little bit differently or to question the way we have always understood things. And I think it's just creating those spaces for questions um, that's so important. Yeah, but I would add to that, uh, Diane, that that for me, where I'm coming from, it's not just to throw it in people's faces like, oh, look, there's a new world, get on board. It's mm-hmm. like, we're all here together. Let's onboard mm-hmm. together. And I don't I, I, I don't want to put that message out that um, I'm being antagonistic, like people need to just catch up to where we're, you know, um, like enlightened or something. It's not about that. It's, it's, it's an incredibly... Uh, like uh, there's a generosity where I'm coming from that extends to everybody because these are ideas and concerns that everyone has a stake in. For escape during this pandemic, what TV shows are you binging? (laughs) When you're not, when you're not imagining the future of the world. This is an easy one, Diane. (laughs) I am watching... Terrace House. It is a Japanese reality TV program. It's like television as ASMR. It, it's just <laughs> nothing's happening all day long. These people are co- living together, six people in a house, and they're doing literally the bare minimum of just oh, wow. cooking their meals, learning how to play the guitar. There's no drama. And <laughs> people aren't rude to each other. They're not trying to compete with each other. It's just 
It's very soothing. And it's a world that is pre-pandemic. So it's like this kind of like nostalgia for a like 2019 world of (laughs) no cares in the world. And our fears seemed so minor back then, right? Compared to now. Um, It's literally just watching ambient television like a goldfish, you know? Um, I really find it fascinating (laughs) and very comforting to watch. So that's what I'm binging. Tara's house. John, what about you? Oh, I mean, mine, not not even as highbrow as that. (laughs) 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 I am really lowbrow, like super lowbrow. No, go go low, go low. What's low? Football. I mean, it's the most mindless you know, kind of attachment and, and pretty predictable for a man in this, you know, early 60s. But I have to say the absence of drama, the absence of story editing and all of that, the trappings of of what television has become, you know, the secessions and all of that. I just can't bear it anymore. <laughs> 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 I watch football. I mean, any kind of football, you know, just just this like lack of uh, planning and organizing and, you know, mm-hmm. uh, three acts and all of that. I just find it yeah. so fascinating. Just do precisely what Annika's talking about. Just vegetate. But I, I share that sentiment, John. Like I, I want when I'm not, quote unquote, working, I don't want to be intellectually engaged. Everything just feels so super organized. And I just Mm -hmm. want a bit more chaotic. You know, so you want the just, mayhem of sports Yeah, I'd too. like a bit more mayhem. <laughs> you know, as okay. I see when I go outside, you know, it just everything just feels as if it's so super excluded from from the outside world, and I, I just find the the fakeness of it really difficult to take at the moment. I must admit, mm-hmm. it's just now. I mean, you know, two years ago I was into it, you know, mm-hmm. but right mm-hmm. now I just like mm, give me football. I'd love to, you know, obviously thank Anik Yee and John Akamfra. Thank you so much for connecting with us today. You know, I think it's thrilling that you two actually got to meet and have a conversation. And I hope this is just the beginning. I love this. Thank you so much for the uh, bringing us together, Diane. It's been such a privilege. And I think that like when what John said earlier about us being like these Siamese twins, it really, it was so touching to hear, but also it, it really mitigates the loneliness of being an artist sometimes, you know, when you feel this this resonance with a, another person. Thank you for doing what you do, John. I hope we get a chance to do some more. Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can follow the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, or your favorite podcast app. You can also listen back to Season 1, featuring conversations between Pharrell Williams and Ez Devlin, Kira Knightley and Lulu Wang, and many more. <laughs>